You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. <laughs> totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. But there's one more development. 
this time from another prophet, Ezekiel. And he has this vision where he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out from it. And then that water turns into a stream and then it grows into a deep river that starts flowing through the desert, leaving this trail of green trees behind it. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, making everything fresh and alive. So instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? So we don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a, a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. And so this is why Jesus described his followers as having streams of living water flowing out of them. So this is our part of the story where we find ourselves now. but. Where's this all heading? So the last pages of the Bible end with a final vision about God's holiness. And this time it's by a guy named John. And in his vision, we see the whole world made completely new. The entire earth has become God's temple. And Ezekiel's river is there flowing out of God's presence, immersing all of creation, removing all impurity and bringing everything back to life. start off uh, this morning as we jump into Exodus 32 and then into Exodus 33. Holiness. I thinking about the sun helps us a little bit to think about holiness as goodness and how dangerous it is as we get close. Uh, did you know just right before the pandemic hit in February of 2020, uh, NASA alongside with uh, ESA, uh, the European Space Agency, they, they launched a uh, a solar orbiter probe that's going to try to get as close as it can uh, to the sun. And a couple days ago, they released an 83 million pixel image of the sun that's taken right by this orbiter. This is the closest picture right that we have uh, of the sun. I spent you know, a whole bunch of time yesterday just zooming in to all the different parts of the sun. And you, so you can check that out online. And to do this, this solar orbiter, they said, has to have a, a specially designed titanium heat shield that can withstand a uh, thousand degrees Fahrenheit. You know how hot the sun is? It's 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's a small star, right? So the holiness of God, his purity, his power, his transcendence, the uniqueness is the context of where we have to begin today, chapter 33. God is about to move in with the Israelites. They have signed a covenant and a contract, a lease together at Mount Sinai. And even before they get going, Israel is already kind of breaking the agreements, leaving dirty dishes in the sink, right? And so there's this huge tension of how can a holy God be with such sinful people? And 
remember in chapter 32, 3,000 people were killed. And there's a plague now going through the land. And Romans 11.22 says, Behold, the kindness and the severity of God. And if we believe God is all just kindness and no severity, then we actually raise up a false idol, right? Another golden calf. And then the other way around, if we believe that God is just all severity and no kindness, then we raise up another golden calf. And here in Exodus 33, because of his proximity and holiness, you know, they should have already been wiped out. And actually God holds back and shows a lot of restraint and mercy here. And this time of death and this time of plague is actually another chance for Israel to kind of think about, hey, where are we headed here? And are we going to truly follow God? And it should give us pause today and think about our time. You know, today, two years of pandemic, we're waiting to see what's going to happen here in Eastern Europe. And if that hasn't caused us to stop and pause and examine our relationship with God, I don't know what will. And Israel here in their time of waiting, you know, they're asking, hey, when's Moses coming back? When's he coming back? And they take a huge step backwards because they don't treat God as holy. And so how do we go forward after going backwards is kind of the question here in Exodus 33. And, and Bible teacher Warren Wearsby, he says this, When God's servants are discouraged and disappointed because of the sins of the people, the best remedy for a broken heart is what? Is a new vision for the glory of God. A new vision for the glory of God. And who's going to give them this new vision for the glory of God? A mediator, a Moses Okay, who now has to go and meet with God after the golden calf. And so let's go to chapter 33. Let's start here in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will set an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites, a lot of ites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is a phrase that's used very often. Uh, you find it even in the book of Acts. Um, God says, hey, let's go. Let's keep moving forward. All the promises are still there. Hey, the land flowing with milk and honey, I'm giving that to you. However, the plans for the tabernacle, the smoke and the pillar of fire, they're all going away now because his presence is going to leave them. And it's not just because of his wrath. It's because of his mercy. Because he says, if I stay with you, hey, I might consume you uh, because you are a stiff-necked people. The, the Hebrew sifnek uh, is kasha oref. Kasha means hard, stubborn, uh, difficult. And oref means neck or back of neck and is also used as a verb meaning to turn back. And one uh, uh, commentator renders this phrase kasha oref, stiff-necked, as having your head on backwards. Okay? He says, I can't go with you because you have your head on, screwed on backwards. You're always looking to the way that it was, 
And so you can't fully engage where God is actually taking you forward. You're always looking to the way it was, so you can't fully engage to where God is truly taking you. So in reading this, you know, I asked myself, right, are you and I a stiff-necked people too? Are you and I stiff-necked too? Um, you want to see what a stiff-necked person looks like? All right, here you go. There's one image I found. I cut my kid's hair, and so you guys want a haircut like that. So are you and I, right, stiff-necked as well? Right? Are you and I always looking to the good old days, the pre-pandemic days, when God is trying to take you a whole new way forward? So verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word that God's gonna, presence is going to leave, okay, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And therefore the people of Israel stripped, off, stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And remember in Exodus 12, as they left Egypt, the Egyptians gave them uh, silver, gave them gold, gave them clothing, gave them jewelry. And yet, these are the same things that actually caused them to stumble, and um, they used them to make idols to make their golden calf. And notice here kind of the first step of us kind of riding uh, our heads and looking forward. Okay, one uh, is mourning, right? Um, is there godly sorrow right, in our hearts for these things? And then number two, what things have you put away that keep distracting you, that keeps leading you to sin, whether that's an inappropriate relationship, a bad habit, a bad pattern of thinking or behavior? Okay, the other question that I started asking right, is, what is God calling you to put off from here onward? Right? Are we being stiff-necked about certain things? And what is God calling you to put off from here onward? Uh, and maybe we need to look back at the last two years and be thinking about these two questions. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called, he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again, into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And so Moses now has to go outside and have a meeting with God after hey, this news that God's presence is going to leave. Uh, and, and here in verse 11, I, I don't want to, don't get tripped up here by this idiom, you know, face to face, because we know a man cannot see God's face uh, fully and live. And so this phrase, I think, signifies his closeness, his intimacy, talking to God as a friend. But at this point, I don't think they're literally talking face-to-face -face yet uh, since Moses comes out alive after these meetings. Right? So I think that's still to come. 
But for this next meeting with God, here's the proposition right, that Moses has to wrestle with and has to mediate for. Uh, it's this question. Right? If you can have the blessings of God, right, the land flowing with milk and honey, and not have his presence, okay, would you take it? You could still have you know, all the good things, but not have his presence go with you. Would you take it? Right? Deal or no deal? Still all the good things that are there. Right? And if we're honest, as long as maybe we had all our needs met, and maybe some of our wants met, we had our family, our friends, they're all doing well. I think we'd be okay if we didn't have to spend extra time maybe getting to know God or having to ask Him for our daily bread. As long as life is good, I think maybe sometimes we'll feel like, hey, it's, it's okay if we don't always have to deal with that, that severity of God's holiness right, and who He is. But here's how Moses responds as he mediates for the people. Okay, he's got three requests. And I think we need to pay attention to these three requests because I think this is maybe how, if we don't know how to pray in this 2022, these are ways we can pray for us, for our families, and even for our church. Okay? And he asked God to show him three things. So Moses, he mediates. And he asks for three things. Verse 12, Moses says, said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So in, in asking, hey, Moses appeals to his relationship with God, his closeness. He appeals to the fact that, hey, uh, Israel right, is your chosen people. So number one, he says, I need you to show me your ways. Right, to go forward, you must know and understand his ways. Okay, we need to be able to see the way God sees it, right? not just our perspective. Because if he is holy, if there are certain ways of living that are inappropriate if I'm in a relationship with him. And what's the next book that comes after Exodus? All right, Leviticus. That's right. Most of us don't make it past, right? Leviticus. Um, and this is where Leviticus comes from. Right? You, you want to know my ways? Here, I'll show you what it takes okay, for me to be living uh, with you. And God's response is very interesting here in verse 14. You know, Moses says, show me your ways. And he says, verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Okay? He says, if you truly want to know and understand my ways, he says, well, I'm going to have to go with you. Right? The answer is not just to memorize a list of rules, but to know his ways, there must be proximity, there must be relationship. And over and over, the Bible says okay, that the way to God is, will never just be a set of directions, it will always be a, person, a person's presence. Right? And when the disciples were asking, hey, Jesus, we don't know the way, where are you going? He says what in John 14? Hey, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in that very same chapter, he emphasizes the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Okay, he shows himself to the ones whom he has relationship with, to the ones who draw near to him. You want to know his ways? Proximity and relationship. And it, it's interesting that the answer to show me your ways, 
right, actually leads to the second request. Verse 15. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth? So request number two, right? show me your ways, show me you are with us. Right? To go forward, we must have his presence. I'm not going if you're not coming with us. Right? We're not going all together if you are not in this. And what's interesting here is that Moses connects God's presence as well right, with how they affect and influence those around them. Right? It's a very outward-looking and missional request, how God's presence is essential and crucial to our testimony to the rest of the world. Because how can they distinguish that we are with you if your presence is not with us? Okay? So show me you are with us is actually show everybody okay, that you are with us. His presence is for the benefit of the people around us. And God's response to this, verse 17, uh, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So he likes it. He says, I'll make sure my presence goes with you. So Moses has gotten two favorable answers from God. This is going pretty good right, for him. What else can he ask for? Right? It's, like a, it's like a kid who goes to his parents. He looks for a favorable time. They're in a good mood. And then first he asks like, you know, these kind of little things, smaller things that he wants. And then when he gets it, like, oh, now it's on. I want to ask for that really big thing that he really wants. And I think this is what Moses' third request is. He's asking now for himself. Okay? Show me your ways. Show me you are with us. And now, here's what I really want. Show me your glory. Moses said, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Right, show me your glory. To go forward, you must have, as Warren Wearsby said, a vision uh, for the glory of God. His glory must be the ultimate prize at the end of the race uh, for us. And Moses, right, he's seen the burning bush. He's seen the ten plagues. Uh, he's seen the Red Sea. He's seen the manna. He's seen water come out of a rock. He's seen the quail come out from the desert. He's seen thunder and lightning. And he says, what? I want more. I want more and more of who you are. And the word glory uh, in Hebrew is kavod, okay? kavod, which means majesty, splendor, and honor. And it carries a sense of weightiness to it. There's this phrase in scripture called, uh, it says, the weight of glory, right? The weight of glory that hits you so hard, affects you so deeply because it's so profound and majestic, right? 
So when have you last felt the weight of his glory? The heavens declare the glory of God. When have you last felt the weight of God's glory? Because Moses' final request gets to the heart of it all. That you and I are made for the glory of God. In Moses' request, fast forwards to the future where everyone is headed. I say this a whole bunch of times uh, in youth group. Like, what are we doing here as a church? Like, what am I doing here teaching you? I'm preparing you to meet face-to-face with your creator. I'm preparing you to meet face-to-face with the glory of God. And God's response, and he, he loves Moses' heart, but he knows it will kill Moses, and he needs Moses to keep leading these people. So he says, I'm going to find a way to get you as close as you can to my glory without obliterating you. Okay? Like holiness, it gets dangerous for us as we get closer to his glory. Um, and he says to him, my goodness, okay? I'll show you my goodness, I'll show you my name. Uh, and we, we'll see a lot of that in Exodus 33. Dr. G is going to come next week, and he's going to talk to us about Exodus 33, God's goodness and his name uh, in Exodus 33, which is actually the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, the most quoted passage since found in Exodus 34. Right? But God says, I'll give you my goodness, I'll give you my name, and I'm going to find a way for you to draw near. And God hides Moses on this cleft of this rock. And in that picture, we can't get away from the imagery okay, of Jesus, okay, our rock, okay, who covers our sinfulness and allows us access to God. Right? So this interaction with Moses here is actually beautifully points us to our ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ, who actually answers all three of these requests in his person. Right, Jesus, the mediator, hey, show me your ways. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so the most important question that people can ask is, who do, people, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Show me you are with us. And Jesus, hey, the Emmanuel, hey, God with us, he says this right before he leaves, Matthew 28, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, and then he says that, And lo, I am what? With you, always, even to the end of the age. And his presence empowers them to reach other people for his kingdom. And then the last, show me your glory. Listen to this, Hebrews 1.3. Okay, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So have you drawn near to Christ, our ultimate mediator. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he purifies us like that coal to be in the presence of God. Ephesians 3.12, In him and through faith in him, you may enter God's presence with boldness and with confidence. And when you look at John 17, uh, Jesus' high priestly prayers, these three requests are found right in it. Show me your ways. Show me you are with us. Show me your glory. And he prays for us as a church that we would share in his glory. And so, 
How do we go forward after going backwards here in 2020? Uh, these three things that we need to pray for in light of God's kindness and holiness. And as we wait for him, and many of us are asking like Israel, hey, when's he going to come back? We pray for ourselves, our family, and our church. Show me your ways okay, that we may know you more and more. Show me you are with us. and Make sure everybody knows around us that you are with us so we can reach them for the kingdom. And show me, lastly, your glory. In the same way Moses had a vision for the future glory of God, we need to have a vision for that. We need to keep longing for the day we see Jesus face to face because this is where we're all pretty much headed. And, right, if all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, okay, then what are we set free from? We're set free from sin. Okay, and what are we set free to? We are set free to experience the fullness of God's glory. And this is our direction, our true north, his glory. Right? And I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time thinking about God's glory and thinking about maybe the first time where I will see him face to face. Uh, I spent a lot of nights awake in my bed just thinking about what would like, that be like. Um, to see the fullness of his glory, his holiness, his power and might without being obliterated by it. And, but instead, okay, having joy, having confidence, and running into my father's arm with confidence and with intimacy. I've thought about it so much that I even have a soundtrack like in my head of what that would, you know, that would be like. Um, this has been, I've been listening to this song or this, uh, this music as I've been writing this sermon. And if you're interested, uh, it's this composer, John Murphy, right? Um, Ariago in D minor. Okay? I encourage you to listen to that. Maybe I'll post it at CBC Connects. But I sometimes will just sit there and listen to this and think about the first time I'll see God face to face. So as you wait and as we long for him, okay, let me leave you with these last two verses. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, okay, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now fast forward to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Are you guys excited about that? That is where we're headed. That's our future. So we pray Show me your ways, show me your presence, and show me your glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, uh, Father, that you have found a way for us to be in your presence, in your holiness, in your glory, and we're excited 
to one day see you face to face. And as we wait, prepare our hearts, help us to have a vision uh, for you and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.